Book of Acts this morning, chapter 8. Bless your word, Lord. We know you always do. But along with blessing your word, bless our hearts, that we might follow the command of the book of James that says that we should receive with meekness your implanted word, which is able to deliver our souls. So we pray for the Spirit's help as we receive with meekness, with openness, with teachability, your word. Thank you, Lord, for your story. The book of Acts is your story, in Jesus' name. Well, last week we looked at the martyrdom of Stephen, the first martyr of the church, and the horrible way in which he was stoned to death. One of the Facebook comments on the video from last week said, I totally agree with your words about Stephen's death, but I always feel true grief when I read about his death. And I'm sure many of us can relate to that statement. It's like the death of John the Baptist. So unnecessary. So unjust. And the heart is broken when we hear of the sufferings of God's people. The background of this, uh, this morning's passage goes back to chapter 1 of Acts, where Jesus is gathered with his disciples just before he's going to ascend into heaven. And he tells them that they need to wait in Jerusalem until they are endued with power from on high. Don't try to do anything for me during these 10 days. Just wait, because you need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So when Stephen died, there was a shift, a major shift that occurred in the narrative of the book of Acts. At Stephen's death, from that point on, it was game on. The persecution of the church happened. Many believers in Jerusalem were forced out and scattered. Guess where those believers went? They relocated all throughout Judea and Samaria. You're looking at a map of the area. You can see where Jerusalem is in the middle, the smaller uh, shaded area, and then Judea to the south and to the west a bit, and then Samaria to the north. But these are the areas in which they were scattered and where the gospel continued to spread. So it's very obvious, reading the story of Acts, and seeing the progress from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, which is the story that the book of Acts tells, that Jesus used the persecution against the church to steer the church in the way that he wanted the church to go. The gospel must go beyond Jerusalem. Otherwise, it's just a Jewish sect with its headquarters in Jerusalem. It must go to Samaria, which is kind of like halfway between Jew and Gentiles. And it must go to the Gentile world and to the ends of the earth. Otherwise, you and I, most of us, wouldn't be in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus used the persecution against the church to steer the church in the way he wanted uh, them to go. 
So the title of the message is The Next Frontier, Samaria. And that's what our passage deals with this morning, is the advancement of the gospel from Jerusalem to Samaria and the things that happened there. So the first section, the first couple of verses, the accelerated persecution of the church. We're reading, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. The first sentence, now Saul was consenting to his death. What that means is that he was in continual agreement with and even gratified with the fact that Stephen was dead. He liked it. He was a fan of it. He was for it. He voted for it. And you can't imagine a heart any darker than that that would wish and be happy about the death of one of God's favorites, Stephen. But yet that was Paul's, before he was Paul, When he was Saul, that was his state of mind. To him, it was absolutely the right thing to do. Stephen must die. Now Jesus had told his disciples in that upper room discourse section of the Gospel of John that there will be a time coming when they will put you out of the synagogues. He's speaking to his disciples. The time is coming that whoever kills you thinks that he's offering service to God. And that's no doubt what Saul felt. He believed that by killing Stephen and making sure that that happened, he was actually serving the Lord in doing so. And Jesus added, these things they will do because they've not known the Father nor me. And that was certainly true of Saul of Tarsus. He had not yet known the Father nor had he known the Lord Jesus Christ. Later when he wrote to the Corinthians, he said, I am the least of the apostles. I'm no longer worthy. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Yet I did these, I received mercy because I did these things, he wrote to Timothy, ignorantly and in unbelief. It was while he was in the ignorance of unbelief that He had done these things. So the persecution came. The persecution was hard. They spread. uh, The disciples scattered. And uh, it's the same word, interesting. It's the word that you would use to describe seed being sown in a field by hand. You reach into the bag of seed and you, you throw it out into the already prepared ground. Well, that's what was happening with the persecution of the church. The Lord Jesus was scattering the seed of his people out into the world beyond Jerusalem. And they would take root there. And they would grow there. And there would be fruit there. And the gospel would spread. That's what was going on in this section. Like with the old book title, Out of the salt shaker and into the world. That's what was going on. We're the salt of the earth, but sometimes we stay in the shaker way too long. We need to be shaken out of the salt shaker into the world, into our neighborhoods, into our uh, workforce, into uh, places that we know, into our families, even beyond those places, in order to share this wonderful news of Jesus. 
So that's what happened out of Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But the apostles, our text tells us, remained in Jerusalem. That's a key point. At least for the present time, they remained in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the already acknowledged headquarters of everything. It wasn't going to remain that way long. Eventually, Antioch in the north would be more of a headquarters. But for this time in the history and the development of the church, Jerusalem was the headquarters. So the apostles stayed there. I was thinking about that this morning. You know, a lot of these guys weren't even from Jerusalem. But now they're staying there. They're from the Galilee region, which is much, you know, in many ways prettier. Jerusalem is a majestic city, don't get me wrong, but the Galilee region with the Sea of Galilee and the, the rivers and Mount Hermon and, and all of that is unbeatable, it really is. I can understand them wanting to live up there, but they stayed in Jerusalem. Eventually, the apostles would leave Jerusalem and travel all over the world to preach. And this is the story of outside of the book of Acts history that is told. Thomas, for example, going to India, and Peter to Antioch, and to Rome, and uh, John to Ephesus, and so on and so forth. This is what was going on. There was a scattering, eventually, of the apostles as well. So the, the work was going on. The effect of this persecution is given us in verses 3 and 4. Reading, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. He made havoc of the church. He became intense. He became like a madman, a persecuting madman. At the time this was going on with Paul or Saul externally in his behavior, internally, Jesus told him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. So there's this internal battle that's going on inside of his soul. He didn't want him to acknowledge it until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was resisting the conviction of of the Holy Spirit, convicting of his sin. He was filled with self-righteousness and pharisaical hatred for anything other than what he was. And so he continued on making havoc of the church, just wrecking it. Again, he wrote about these things and talked about these things. As he told his testimony in chapter 22 of Acts, he said, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. When he wrote to the Galatians, he said, You've heard of my former conduct in Jerusalem, or in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure, and tried to destroy it. That was his goal. He tried to destroy the church. Rot's a ruck. That ain't going to happen. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Nothing can destroy his church. But, but Saul tried. But the result of all of this persecution and all of this animosity and all this hatred and all this uh, evil that was perpetrated by Saul, the result was beautiful because it resulted in the expansion of the kingdom. I want you to notice in verse 4, and I don't know what translation you're using, but I'm using the New King James. talks in verse 3 about Saul making havoc of the church, and then in verse 4, The first word of the New King James Bible in verse 4 is, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Therefore. 
Now, I don't know why, but many of the translations don't include the word therefore in their translation. But it's in the Greek text. Actually, there are two words that are in the Greek text that they could, the translators could have put them together. So therefore, the word so is in the Greek text, S-O, and the word therefore is also in the Greek text. They could have easily put those in the translations, but they didn't. So many of them just say so. Saul's making havoc of the church. So they're scattered around. But the word therefore is important because it connects what's gone on with this new thing that's happening. Therefore, in spite of the persecution, and maybe even because of it, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. It matters. Uh, words matter. And so this is what was going on. There was a, a new anointing ex- being experienced by the church. And, and we've seen this on short-term mission trips. And we took chur- uh, people on short-term mission trips often. And, you know, people that are in the church, in their, in their fellowship, in the cozy environs of the church family and so on, it's wonderful. But they can't envision themselves doing anything other than the most basic, simple tasks within the church. Because after all, who am I to do anything? And I don't have anything special to offer and so on. But then they go on these short-term mission trips, and they experience the power of God in a completely different context. They're giving testimonies. They're preaching the gospel. They're praying for people to be healed. They're doing all kinds of things that they didn't see themselves doing back home. That's what's going on here. In Jerusalem, in the bubble of Christian fellowship that belonged there in Jerusalem, maybe some of them were like that. Just kind of, well, not doing a whole lot, just enjoying this life in Christ. I mean, thousands of us everywhere. You look around and believers everywhere in Yeshua, the Messiah. Fantastic. Let's stay here forever. Uh, but that's, that wasn't what God's plan was. So they go out. And they're discovering that they could be used by the Lord. Even though the apostles were back in Jerusalem and the apostles are nowhere to be seen, in the new place they go, even with the apostles not here, they could be used by the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. That's the exciting thing that takes place when a group of people catches fire uh, in the Holy Spirit. Because obviously our tendency is to remain comfortable. We like what's comfortable. I like what's comfortable. I do. I like watching the Dodgers every evening and uh, just enjoying, you know, (laughs) things that I enjoy. But a job transfer comes in, unexpected. Finances go south. Didn't see that coming. A family member comes ill, becomes ill and disrupts, not disrupts, but changes the whole focus of family life. Something gets shaken up, and then all of a sudden now, we're outside of our comfort zone. We're in a new level of comfort. I wonder what's going to happen if the church really does go through severe persecution in the United States. I have a feeling that there's going to be a sifting that takes place if and when that occurs. True believers are going to remain true believers, and those that are just kind of riding the fence and just hanging out and not taking it real seriously... They're just going to go back into the things of the world and just uh, slide into life like everybody else is li- uh, living it. But for those who, who are disrupted because of persecution, 
and are true followers, close followers of Jesus, guess what will happen? Jesus will lead them to find ways to survive and find ways to be together and to be mutually encouraged in the face of great spiritual heat and discomfort and persecution. And don't imagine that it can't happen here. It can happen here. I have a friend who pastors a church in uh, uh, Central California, and he's actually preparing in his school of ministry people uh, how to how to be ready for times like this if they come. He's specifically training up small group leaders to be able to lead uh, smaller segments of the church population as house churches, and and they're doing it on a biblical level. And I applaud him for that effort because. It's better to be prepared and be serious about the possibility of these kinds of things than be caught flat-footed. So this persecution ended up being a good thing uh, in terms of how the Lord used it uh, in the church, in the development of the church. Now we come to the ministry of Philip the Evangelist. So exciting. Philip the Evangelist. And uh, so we're going to see this in the next few verses. Uh, So we read verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. So Philip, you remember Philip, one of the seven listed in Acts chapter 6 that were to take care of the Hellenistic widows who were being neglected in the daily distribution of the food. So this is that Philip. And now he's going down to Samaria. Now you're thinking, I remember that map that was up on the screen, and Jerusalem was here, and Samaria was up here. How come he's going down to Samaria? It's because Jerusalem is an elevation higher than Samaria, so from in relationship to Jerusalem, everywhere you went in Israel, you were going down to that place. That's the way they worded it. So he went down to Samaria, preached Christ to them. Now we can't help but think of 1 Timothy 3.13, which talks about the office of a deacon, which is essentially what Philip was. In that verse, it tells us that those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. And that's, a, that's what happened in Philip's life. He served faithfully as a deacon, uh, serving the widows, being involved in that important work in Jerusalem, And man, was there a spiritual explosion in his life and through his life uh, as a result. Because that's the promise of 1 Timothy 3.13. Going on in verse 6, And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Now Philip's doing miracles. Stephen, if you remember, had done miracles and signs prior to his being martyred. Now Philip is part of that as well. For unclean spirits, now the miracles are going to be identified for us. Unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. So the miracles listed, unclean spirits uh, cast out, paralyzed people healed, lame people healed, Instant, immediate, divine healings apart from any kind of intervention on the part of uh, physicians or surgeons. It was something God did. He healed. I do believe that this is happening today 
all over the world. I have another friend that has been part of YWAM for many years. He tells me stories about the young YWAM evangelists that are preaching the gospel in many places all over the world. And one of the cool things that's going on is that they're going to the streets and they're asking people if they would like to be prayed for. But specifically they're saying, do you have any physical needs that you would like us to pray for? Now who doesn't have a physical need? Yeah, I got a hangnail on my right big toe. You know, I mean, we can think of something. Pray for that. And so they do, they pray. And many times the Lord is healing the people, and that opens the door to preach the gospel to the people. And people are coming to Christ. I think this is happening. I think one of the, this is an opinion now. I think one of the reasons why we don't see more healing today, physical, miraculous healing, than we do is because we're not asking. We're just not asking. The person that needs to be healed isn't asking for prayer in many cases, too many cases, and we who can be the prayers, praying over people to be healed, we're not uh, asking if we might be allowed to pray for them uh, for a healing. Who knows what God's going to do? Uh, in a workplace, somebody tells you about the cancer that they're being diagnosed with. Can I pray with you? Absolutely. Can I pray for you? They'll say, absolutely. Can I pray with you? Well, that's a little... Yeah, can I, can I pray with you right now? In a discreet way, in a, in a quiet way, you know, not using your preacher voice in the, <laughs> in the break room, but uh, in a quiet, discreet way. And just praying, just putting your hand on the, on the guy's shoulder. And who knows what God might do? And we've seen him do stuff. He does a lot more than we think that he is willing to do. James says, you have not because you ask not. <laughs> and sometimes even when you ask, you ask selfishly that you might consume it upon your own lusts. So these miracles are going on uh, through uh, Philip's ministry, and great joy resulted in that city because obviously the things that they were relying on weren't helping. Verse 9, but there was a certain man, now that's important, but there... So you got this great work of God going on. The gospel's being preached and miracles are taking place. There's always a but there. There's always something that comes in. Uh, as much as the Lord is sowing the, the seeds of the kingdom, the sons of the kingdom into the world, so the enemy is sowing the sons of the wicked one into the world. And sometimes they show up in places where worship is taking place. And that's what was going on here. But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. These are the words that are coming out of Simon's mouth. I'm great. I'm someone great. Look at me. I'm great. To whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed, but when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Let's talk about Simon for a little bit here. He likes to talk about himself. Let's talk about him for a little bit. 
First of all, he claimed to be someone great. Proverbs 27, 2, classic verse, he said, Let another man praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. But he was doing all the praising himself. It doesn't count. <laughs> so let somebody else do it, if anybody's going to do any praising of anybody. He'd astonished them, the text tells us, with his sorceries for a long time. The word literally is magia, from which we get the word magic. He was a magician. He was Siegfried and Roy on steroids there in the city of Samaria. He knew how to do all the things, sleight of hand and all these different things, to get people to believe that he was actually doing miraculous things. Which is one of the reasons why he was so astonished when he saw Philip. Because he saw that what Philip was doing was a whole lot different than the stuff he was doing. And he was astonished by what Philip was doing because that was real. Mine's just sorcery. It's just magic tricks. But it says that Simon himself also believed. Don't get stumbled by that because of what you know about Simon later on. James tells us that you believe there is one God. You do well, even the demons believe and they tremble. The fact that Simon believed, at least on an intellectual level, the things that Philip was preaching, doesn't matter at all. Because the distance between the brain and the heart is a very, very long distance. 18 inches in terms of measurement for the most part. But it's a, it's a chasm of eternity in, in the reality of how different the brain and the heart is. He hadn't believed with his heart. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The difference between going to heaven or going to hell is 18 inches, head or heart. Intellectual ascent or really embracing who Jesus is. Now just looking at Simon and just sort of summarizing him at this point in the chapter, in many ways Simon the sorcerer was the New Testament counterpart to Balaam in the Old Testament. Reading about Balaam in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 25 in the book of Numbers. Balaam was this enigmatic prophet from the east whom Balak, the king of Moab, hired to pronounce a curse upon Israel. But he was a believer in Yahweh, the God of the Jews. Yet he also was a believer in some sort of a magical capability of cursing Israel. And if you read the story, it's, it's a great encouragement for any believer anywhere because every time Balaam opened his mouth to curse Israel, blessings would come out. And it made the Moabite king so angry he fired him. And yeah, I'm not going to pay you anymore for this. You're not doing a good job at all. But the Simon was this New Testament counterpart of Balaam. Uh, we know from history that he actually was a Gnostic leader. Gnosticism was a philosophy that grew into a religious uh, phenomenon in the first century, late first century, early second century, and on into the subsequent centuries. Uh, and he was a Gnostic leader and teacher. And as the text 
here tells us his disciples did refer to him as the great power of God. But history, if you read about uh, Simon in history, history doesn't speak well of Simon at all. Uh, he's not the kind of guy that you'd uh, want to leave your billfold around, you know, on a, on a table, that kind of guy. He's not that kind of guy. How do you explain a guy like Simon? Well, it seemed like he was one of them. He's hanging out with Philip. He's enjoying the company of the believers. He's astonished with miracles. Yeah, he's a believer for sure. Well, John writes about such people later on in his first epistle. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Basically, he didn't stick around. He didn't persist. He didn't remain in what he claimed to have been. Okay, we're going to pause on Simon for a bit. We're going to look at the validation of Philip's ministry. He's preached the gospel. He's got signs and wonders going on. People are being baptized. It would seem like that's enough validation. But remember, the apostles were in Jerusalem. So there has to be some sort of a connection to the apostolic authority in the early church. And that's what's going on here. The, the apostolic validation of, uh, of Philip's ministry. Verse 14, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now again, they're in Samaria, right? Now this is not brand new to the first disciples anything evangelistic going on in Samaria. That had happened in the ministry of Jesus back in John chapter 4, where he, it says in the text, he must needs go through Samaria. The normal route was to take the, uh, the route along the Jordan, but he had to go through Samaria because there was a woman there. They wanted to meet at the well. And he was going to win this woman to himself. And she was going to be an evangelist to the town uh, there in Samaria. And they came out to see Jesus themselves because of the testimony of the woman. And then Jesus spent time with them in that town uh, with the disciples. And they now said, now we believe, not because of the testimony of the woman, because we've seen for ourselves. And so there was a beginning work among the Samaritans that initiated itself from Jesus himself. He was the one that started this work in Samaria. Now remember, the Jews and the Samaritans had no dealings with each other because there was animosity between them. They were different tribes, different belief systems and so on. So this work has gone on in Samaria. And it's new. It's, it's the kind of work that was going on in Jerusalem when the church bro- busted loose at the seams, and was doing so well. So the apostles go uh, down to Samaria, and they uh, are able to observe, of course, what's going on. And then they realize that the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen upon the believers in Samaria, as he had 
upon the believers in Jerusalem when, in Jesus' uh, ministry uh, before he ascended. And so they sent him. They sent them. And they went down and they prayed for them. They laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now this had the effect of confirming completely the ministry of Philip and what was going on there. Because remember, the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. That's how the church was built, upon Jesus Christ, upon the prophets, and upon the apostles. The the original 12 I'm talking about. Minus one, add one. So that 12, uh, that's the church. And everything that happened in the church had to be established through the authority that Jesus had given to them uh, to have authority. And so that's what was going on here in this validation of Philip's ministry. But there's opposition as well. Verse 18 and 19, opposition to Philip's ministry. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given. See, Simon saw something. The apostles had laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. We are not told what that looked like. How did he know they received the Holy Spirit? What kind of manifestations were there? None are mentioned. Nothing's listed. So we don't know. But he saw something happened with these believers in Samaria. And when he saw that, he wanted it himself. So he offered them money saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He offered the apostles, Peter and John, money. Offered to pay them that they would give to him the ability to do this same thing. Again, to advance his own cause. He knew that this kind of power was real. He knew he didn't have it, so he coveted it. The spiritual gifts, obviously, cannot be bought. And spiritual gifts are not for the purpose of the person who is being used in the gift. Not primarily. I mean, I enjoy being used in the gifts of the Spirit. And it's a wonderful experience to work with God and have God work with us. It really is. It's it's wonderful. But it's not about me, and it's not about the person being uh, the one who exercises the gifts of the Spirit. It's about the glory of God Himself, and it's about edifying the believers. This is the problem the Corinthians had. The Corinthians, they, they were all excited about the gift of tongues. So they come together and everybody's speaking in tongues out loud with no interpretations at all. It was chaos. Unbelievers would come in and say, you people are crazy. Unlearned who maybe weren't unbelievers, they believed in the validity of these things, but they, they just hadn't learned very much about how the gifts of the Spirit operate. They also said, you're crazy. So Paul had to straighten out the Corinthians and tell them how to properly exercise the gift of tongues in their assemblies And so they were straightened out. But they were enamored with this thing. They thought the gifts were about themselves and about their own enjoyment. And Paul said, therefore, seek to to, uh, be used in these ways for the building up of the church. Think of others. We've got to think of others. That's why the gifts of the Spirit are given. Others, 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 because that's what Jesus was about. Others. 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant. It was all about others. Jesus' life was all about others. So should ours be as well, especially in this matter of the gifts of the Spirit. But Simon, for him, it was all about himself. He wanted this power. Paul says there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. Differences of ministries, but the same Lord. Diversities of activities. It's the same God who works all in all, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. So the offer had been made, money in exchange for the power to lay hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, to Simon, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. So two things are going to happen here, Simon boy. Number one, you're going to perish and your money's going to perish with you. You're done. Now, Peter, remember what God had, what Jesus had called him to be. He said, I, you're Peter upon this testimony of who I am as Messiah. I'm going to build my church. Gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Peter had the keys of the kingdom. And if you read the story of Peter through the book of Acts, you see that he used them. He was the one preaching on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people came to the Lord. He used the keys to open up the door of faith to all those that were there, even those that had put Jesus on the cross. And then you see uh, the opening of the doors here. The keys of the kingdom going down and validating Philip's ministry of the gospel. The keys. They're given to open a door. Peter did it. And then you see it here. In closing a door to somebody who was pretending to be a believer, who apparently was not a believer, who was guilty of this horrible, horrible bribery, sinful um, desire that he had. So Peter said, okay, this is done. Peter was the one that called out the sin of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, if you remember. They were hypocrites. They were pretending to be more than they were. They could have given any amount of money they wanted to, and it would have been completely fine. They could have given nothing. They could have given everything. They could have given something in the middle. In the middle, didn't matter. But they can't lie about it. They can't say, I gave everything, and then in reality only give part of it. If you're going to say, I gave everything, then that means you had to have given everything. You say, I gave half of it, then good, give half of it. It's up to you. Peter called him out. Ananias died. Later, Sapphira died. He's using the keys. That's what's going on here. So we've got this gesture from Simon. It's called simony. We have a word for it today. Simony is the practice of the buying or the attempted practice to buy or sell any spiritual gifts or, or office. <laughs> simony. And we got it right from this particular chapter. And that's what they were try- he was trying to do. Peter goes on to say to Simon, you have neither part nor portion in this matter. Your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Not just your actions, but the thought of your heart be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. 
I sure love Peter. He's really learned to have a way with words. <laughs> he really does this well. I mean, this is about as thorough as an indictment as you could make uh, towards another human being. But it was all from the Spirit. And Simon, terrified, no doubt, by what Peter had said, answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you've spoken may come upon me. You know, and I kind of doubt that Peter ever did pray that prayer for Simon. I can envision Peter's prayer being different than this one. He's saying, pray that none of the consequences that I so richly deserve from all of my evil and sin, that they would never come upon me. Pray that, Peter. I'm going to do that. But this is how I will pray. I will pray that you will be broken and you'll be brought to your knees and you'll realize the depth of your sin before God and you'll receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit and believe in the cross of Jesus Christ to pay for that sin as resurrection to give you life and you can truly enter into the kingdom and not as a fake believer. I'll pray that, but I won't pray that the consequences are just going to be immediately, automatically, magically taken away. I can't see him praying this prayer for Simon. So that ends the story of Simon in the book of Acts. Bye-bye, Simon. Keeping on, keeping on. Last verse in the, in the section. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, that is Peter and John, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And I just can't help but imagine Peter and John not only rejoicing for what the Lord was doing in Samaria with these people that were former enemies of the Jews, but also recalling with great spiritual nostalgia their days with Jesus in Samaria. We're doing what Jesus does. We're, we're treating people the way Jesus treats them. We're loving them the way he loves them. Isn't this great? Hey, Peter, didn't win that great? Hey, John, win that great? I can just, if they didn't have the conversation, I'd be surprised. Game on. It's continuing as they go. We need to know what time it is in our current world. Paul said, now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. It's time for us to let the influences of the Spirit come into our souls, and I'm including myself here, that we will not be asleep. It's not time to take spiritual naps. It's time to really deeply connect with what God is doing in His world. It starts by doing the basics. It really does. For somebody who's a true believer, it, it all starts, this waking up and this being sensitive to what God is doing. It starts by doing the basics, opening up the Bible. Being serious with it and letting the Bible be serious with us. Opening up our hearts in prayer and really starting to develop a prayer life and rekindling it if we've lost it. Fellowship. Seeking out biblical Christian fellowship with other believers and being real. Praying for one another. Being caring about one another. Considering one another. Sharing the faith. Sharing the faith of Jesus with as many as we can in ways that the Lord would open a door. And then serving other believers. These are the basics. And these are things that we can know from day one of our Christian journey. Sometimes, and somehow, they become less important to us. And other things that we do become more important. Back to the basics. Because Paul said, now it's high time that we awake out of sleep. Now our salvation is nearer 
than when we believed. And I had that conversation with a dear friend in East Texas on the phone yesterday. He said, I'll tell you what, I can't wait to go to heaven. That's what he said, Ronnie. What a wonderful guy. And we're talking about the streets of gold, and I'm telling him the chronology of when the streets of gold appear, and this new Jerusalem, and he's getting excited. He said, man, I'll tell you what, I can't wait to go to heaven. I said, me neither. But right now, right now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we recognize that the world in which we live There are so many things that happen in us that are way, way beyond anything we can control. And some of it ends up affecting us, affecting the bride, affecting your church. Lord, we thank you for the place that you have us in right now, here, at this time, in this place, in your kingdom. Lord, we pray, we ask you that you would Help us to be awake. Help us to get awake if we've been sleeping. Help us to be fully awake if we've been somewhat awake. Lord, just enable us to seize the moment and to live this day as though it mattered to you, because it does. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the plan that you have for each of us. We are your workmanship, created in Christ for good works that you have foreordained we should walk in. So we surrender to you, Lord. That's what we do. That's what we need to do. Help us, Lord. Strengthen us, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.